Too many who know the angles Uncover and untangle All the questions and the webs left out to tangle I'll be in 1962 Last Wednesday's afternoon They'll bend your ears with reckless self-abandoned The amazing spider talk The amazing spider talk Come swing the air Sit back and prepare For the amazing spider Flash Thompson once said of Peter Parker that it was likely that he couldn't tell a cha-cha from a waltz. But if you were reading Spider-Man comics in the early 80s, you could sense some kind of dance, whether that be a cha-cha or a waltz, was going on behind the scenes of Spider-Man's world. Month to month under the new leadership from editor-in-chief Jim Shooter, the Spider-Man title saw some of the industry's top upcoming talent cycle on and off the books. Names like John Byrne, Roger Stern, Frank Miller, Mike Zeck, Jim Starlin, John Romita Jr., and more would come to define the comics industry in the late 70s and early 80s and onward, and the various Spider-Man titles were ground zero for their involvement with Marvel. The quickly changing future of superhero comics was being shaped in the offices of Marvel Comics and on the exciting pages of The Amazing Spider-Man. Hello, I'm Dapper Dan Gavazdan, and I own every issue of Amazing Spider-Man, including the annuals, which definitely count. And I'm mischievous Mark Chinacchio, and I too own every issue of Amazing Spider-Man, including the annuals, but the annuals, Dan, they still don't count. All right. Well, <laughs> welcome to the fourth season of the Amazing Spider-Talk, the show where two fans and collectors uncover the fun, strange, and fascinating history of the Spider-Man comic universe. If you want to swing along with us on our journey through Spidey's past, present, and future, subscribe to Amazing Spider-Talk on your favorite podcast app. Every other week, we put out a mainline episode of our flagship show, and sprinkled in between, we review new comics as well as interview some of the greatest Spider-Man creators of yesterday and today. This is the perfect time to start listening. In this season of the all-new Amazing Spider-Talk, we'll be revisiting Spider-Man's adventures in the early 80s, where denim jackets were hip, the villains were forgettable, and Spider-Man found some amazing new friends. But during the Wolfman and O'Neill eras of Amazing Spider-Man, the offices of Marvel Comics saw a ton of changes behind the scenes. The editor-in-chief position became a revolving door until the installation of Jim Shooter in 1978. Meanwhile, the Spider-Man titles helped to build a launching pad for some of the industry's top young talent, including writers like Roger Stern and artists from John Romita Jr. to Frank Miller. Today on The Amazing Spider-Talk, we'll be detailing these shifts in what we're calling the creative cha-cha. And if you haven't already, check out that awesome artwork commissioned from Nick Cagnetti, who's uh, illustrated an incredible scene of all the various creators taking their turns on Spider-Man. That's right, Mark. And if you're watching live, you know what Mark's talking about because you're looking at it right now. Because we're also video streaming our show live when it works. So every other Sunday at 8.30 p.m. Eastern Time, tune in on YouTube as we record Amazing Spider Talk Live. Just go to Amazing Spider Talk on YouTube, hit subscribe, and be sure to turn on notifications by clicking on that bell to be reminded when we go live. 
But we couldn't talk about this one alone, primarily because we weren't there. So today we brought in someone who was there. He was a fixture at Marvel Comics during the late 70s and throughout the 80s uh, and into the 90s, I believe. This person started with the company in the late 70s working on uh, British and domestic reprints before being elevated to, in 1980, to work as Louise Simonson's assistant on the X-Men. But in 1983, he would go on to work on the Spider-Man titles, eventually becoming the editor of Amazing Spider-Man. This person is none other than our dear friend, Danny Fingeroth. Welcome back to the show, Danny. You were one of our very first guests way, way back in the day, and it's it's great to have you back here. We're really happy to have you here, Danny, and you can hopefully help fill us in on some of the gaps in our knowledge because one person can never know everything unless they are you, Danny. We we're talking about Danny O'Neill. Actually, you and I were talking the other day, you know, when he he passed away just about two weeks ago on June 11th. And, you know, Mark and I had the privilege to cover his work on Spider-Man on our show a few weeks back. And I wanted to ask you about Denny as like a as like a person and a friend. I, you know, you, you mentioned that you guys were your friends. I guess I'm curious. We can only guess what Denny was like from reading his material. But I, I guess I'm curious to hear your impressions of the man, your relationship with him and what you think his lasting contributions to comics is. I hate to bring in another plug, but I will, because the San Diego Con is virtual this year, and, and we, you know, they've had everybody pre-record the panels. And one panel I was involved in organizing, and I was a member of, was a, a tribute to Denny O'Neill that had nine of us: Larry Hama, Charlie Kochman, Joe Duffy, Joe Illage. I'm leaving out obviously a bunch of people, a whole bunch of us remembering Denny. So I mean, I think if you're interested in him, that would be a, a, a cool panel for you to check out. Danny was, and you know, if you know your Danny Fingeroth trivia, Danny was my editor on The Dazzler for a while. You know, Danny came to Marvel in about 1980, I think. And he was, to all of us young punks uh, on the staff, he was unbelievably old. That's right. He was 40. Holy cow. <laughs> How could anybody be, I mean, you know, compared to most of us, you know, he, he was... So, but even though there was that, you know, generational gap or whatever you want to call it, he was very approachable and he sort of was like the Sphinx. He knew everything, you know, he had, you know, we kind of knew that he had a lot of obviously comic book experience, a lot of kind of hard mileage in life experience and kind of he was the guru there to share it with you, but, but very approachable. And, and so I... You know, I enjoyed working with him as my editor and as my colleague. But it, it's interesting. hes I got to know him a lot better after he left Marvel, when he went back to D.C. to, to be the Batman editor in about 86, I want to say. And so, and then especially after I left Marvel in 95, just so, somehow we just always kept in touch. We'd have lunch every couple of months. I'd get a call out of the blue from him asking just some question about continuity or, or some technical question, which is pretty humorous, somebody asking me a tech question. But somehow we, we connected in sort of an interest maybe in uh, beatnik culture and in, you know, in, in literature and movies. Oh, I have to say, they're very, you know, very few people were as well-read or well you know, knowledgeable about movies and popular culture as Danny. But he, you know, so I, I felt close to him in, in a way as, as a colleague and friend and just somebody who was 
enjoyable to hang out with. You didn't want to drive with Denny. That was kind of like stories I've heard about Jack Kirby, where I think at a certain point, Jack's mind was always on some cosmic adventure or some global concern and the petty idea of keeping his eyes on the road. Well, obviously, it was a, it was a huge loss for the industry, and for obviously, it sounds like for the people that work with him. I know a number of people just seemed really saddened, and obviously, thanks so much for for sharing those thoughts about him. It kind of puts him in a different con- context. You know, we're just we're fans, so we kind of see see these these people not differently, but it's just a different kind of perspective, I guess. Right, Dan? I, I get it. You know, I mean, obviously, I'm I have my own set of people I'm a fan of that. You know, some I've met and some I haven't, and it's always a little, you're a little trepidatious about it because you don't want to be disappointed. You know, obviously, you know, our little preamble there, we talked about the kind of the editorial turnover at Marvel. That It seemed to have started around the time that Roy Thomas had stepped down as editor-in-chief, and, you know, it seemed like it kind of got the baton got passed around a bunch before settling in, in Jim Shooter's hands in 1978. And, you know, I, I know that you kind of came on towards the, the end of that, that, you know, the revolving door, we keep calling it, you know, I'm just curious from your insights being close to it to some degree, was this indicative of just the fact that Stan Lee wasn't like highly involved in these operations anymore? I mean, what was your sense of what was going on, I guess, at Marvel at that period before, you know, that before Shooter took over, basically? Marvel, you know, which had been called Timely and Atlas and been around since, you know, the 30s. And Stan had been the editor and editor-in-chief since 40, you know, 41, 42. It had been big and it had been a highly, you know, there'd been a ton of editors, a ton of assistants. You know, they were putting out 75, 80 titles a month, but in the late 50s, for a number of reasons, they they uh, contracted to like eight or ten titles a month, and Stan was really the only editor, and then he hired Roy in, I think, 65, and then Stan stayed around as as editor till, 70, till 72, I think, but the structure never changed. The structure was an editor-in-chief, maybe an assistant or two, and that editor, and it wasn't called editor-in-chief, it was just called editor, but that editor would oversee whether Marvel had eight titles or 50 titles. You know, at a certain point, they brought in a bunch of assistants, Scott Edelman, Roger Stern, Joe Duffy, a couple other people. But still, it was basically an editor with some people helping out. And that, and so that became an overwhelming job. It was a job that one person could handle when it was eight or ten titles when it was 50 titles, and, and I, you know, my sense is that the corporate owners never thought it was worth investing the time or the money in staffing up with experienced people who knew what they were doing. And so, you know, people would like the prestige and I guess the salary bump you'd get from being, you know, what then came to be called eventually editor-in-chief. But it was really a, an overwhelming job involving coordinating all the creative teams on, you know, 40 or 50 titles. I guess maybe they had a black and white division that, that was separate, but so coordinating all those creative teams and suddenly it was no longer just Stan and Martin Goodman, you know, making uh, decisions about what to put out and what to spend money on and what to economize on. Suddenly there was this whole corporate infrastructure that the editor-in-chief to get anything done had to go to endless meetings after meetings. So 
it wasn't until Jim Shooter came in and was able to convince the powers that were to add, add the senior type editors and have a structure that was really reminiscent of DC comics in the 40s and 50s with editorial family, you know, with, with, with character families being headed by a single editor, like Mord Weisinger heading up the Superman family and I guess Jack Schiff on Batman. I, I don't know if it was quite that formal, but it, there definitely were. And so, but until then, it was, it was a job, like I said, I'm sure it was, you know, prestigious to be the editor-in-chief, and I'm sure it gave you a salary bump, but it really was way more than people who think of themselves and who were primarily creative wanted to deal with. So we've talked about like, you know, in this season, we're taught, we talked about the kind of Denny O'Neill and, and Marv Wolfman runs on amazing Spider-Man, both kind of short lived runs, especially compared to what preceded them, you know, with like say Len Wein or Jerry Conway or even Stan and, and Steve, you know, and you know, a lot of, you know, the, times when books are collected, these eras are kind of left out of the collections. They're, they're not really like fondly referred to by like titles that came after them. You know, like you might get a reference here or there. It's kind of like this almost like weird lost era of Spider-Man comics. And I guess I'm curious, you know, not just in regards to Spider-Man, but Marvel as a whole, do you feel like these kind of constant changes in editorial structure or who is actually in the seat impacted the quality of the comics of Marvel at the time? Well, what happened is the, you know, say, you know, Marv, Jerry, Len, Roy, Archie. Did I, did, I, did I count? Did I get all the editors-in-chief in that? You know, I think the deal they made when they realized the job was, was more than they wanted to deal with. Well, I used the word deal in two different senses. That was very redundant. <laughs> I think they, you know, sort of one thing that they went walked away with was their choice of titles to write. And there were no, there were no royalties in those days. It was just page rates, but there was a certain prestige to writing Spider-Man or Fantastic Four, especially maybe the Avengers. So I, I think I think I think Marv had a deep connection to Spider-Man, but and Len too. Denny probably probably didn't feel as deep a connection. To, to Spidey, I think that because there, because the editor in chief slash editor was so overwhelmed, there was, for better or worse, no no centralized person who was the Spider-Man authority, and Spy and it was unprecedented. Don't forget, DC had several titles of Batman, several titles of Superman. Mm -hmm. They had a, a kind of a model for how that worked, although, and even then, it didn't always coordinate. But Marvel uh, didn't have more than one title for a character until Spectacular Spider-Man, so there was no precedent. So if the writer was also the editor, then that person was the de facto in-house authority, except for Stan, you know, on what Spider-Man would say, how he would act, who his girlfriend would be. You know, it's funny. One thing I, I found in researching the Stan book is that, you know, every second or third year was a crisis in comics in terms of distribution and sales. There was never a there was never like a long period of smooth sailing. And, you know, it was just like everything was done as a reaction to some crisis. Either paper was too expensive or 
or the mom and pop newsstands and candy stores were closing and the, and the direct market hadn't developed yet. There was always some crazy thing going on uh, <laughs> that was threatening the existence of the, of the company and the, everybody's jobs. I think the idea that, that there's a Spider-Man group and that somebody has to think deeply about what that means and consistency, I don't think anybody was sitting thinking of what's our philosophy about Spider-Man. I think they were thinking, how are we going to get the books out this month? So when Jim Shooter did take over, I mean, you alluded to this earlier, but I mean, what were some of the, I guess, immediate changes that he made to how Marvel was run editorially? Jim was prepared to, what, to break eggs, to make the omelet, to have not everybody like him, you know, to, you know, I think what... Marvel was paying insane amounts of money in late fees at print at the printers. You know, a book would be due, and it wasn't just it wasn't just a matter of disappointed fans who you know would then go spend their money on something else or or something if they if the comic they were expecting at a certain day of the month wasn't there. But but you would be fined or charged some kind of fee by by the people printing the book. So Marvel was losing all sorts of money. So one thing Jim did would be you know he. He instituted procedures to make the books be on time, whether that would be having fill-ins or paying, before there were royalties, there were like bonuses. If a, if you wrote or drew six issues in a row, you'd get like 500 bucks or something, which doesn't seem like a lot <laughs> now, but back then was. So Jim was able to get the Cadence, who was the owner, who were the owners of the company, then Drates, and, and he was able to hire more editors that became especially possible when DC had their implosion and suddenly a bunch of their editors became available. But it was <laughs> a company to hire editors and to, I guess, based on that DC model, to have families, you know, the Spider-Man family, the Avengers family, the X-Men family. When X-Men was just a single monthly title, there was no family, but then there was New Mutants. You know, that and the development of the direct market was a fueled the growth of the line and of the company and so you and so we could hire tom defalco to be the spider-man editor and tom did have a philosophy of spider-man and he did have uh, a knack for getting people who were both talented and able to hit a deadline and and, and so that was that was a that was a big change there the way i somewhat you know compactly phrase it is you had maybe fewer screaming highs but fewer horrific lows in the line also the you know there was a certain consistency both in terms of when they came out and and what you would get as far as story content in terms of getting more or less what we used to call a complete unit of entertainment in each issue even if it was even if it was a continued story how did that grouping of titles kind of impact the line in terms of kind of spin-off books just the very idea of grouping like characters together to me at least in my mind, would seem to kind of push the envelope in regards to like, well, if we're handling all this content, let's get more Spider-Man books. Or do you think that it created that kind of mentality of like creating, uh, expanding the line? It's a chicken and egg thing, right? The sales were going up, the direct market was expanding. So there were more comic shops. So there were more places now for people to get comics I think Cadence and Marvel started investing in having people whose job it was to sell the books even to the newsstands and then to promote subscriptions. 
so as sales went up and then there were more you know dedicated fans then once you had all the titles relating to a character in one editorial office then you could start thinking about spin-offs I think another thing Jim did when I was, you know, when I was working with uh, Louise Simonson, aka Wheezy, aka Louise Jones, when I worked with her as her assistant, we had about eleven to fifteen titles a month. So we had the X Men, maybe the New Mutants, this before the New Mutants, though. But we had the X Men, we had the Conan books, uh, we had Man Thing, we had Star Trek, we had Star Wars. We had we had an unbelievable quantity of material to get out every month. You know, you really should talk to Louise or Jim about this. But I mean, it's you know, in retrospect, each editorial load was kind of uh, lightened, so we could actually focus on more than just having the pages in order and having a reasonable semblance of a story. <laughs> I have to say, Louise was was brilliant and always had much more than that. So I don't can't praise her enough. You know, plus. When my mother called, Louise and my mother, although my mother was very progressive, she was of a certain old school, and she would always say to me, you know, that woman who works for you is very nice. And I go, Mom, actually, she's my boss. <laughs> and Louise never, never got upset about that or tried to disabuse my mother of the notion that Louise was my assistant as opposed to vice versa. Anyway, I digress. So, <laughs> so I think once we had the editorial workloads lightened a little and could focus more on the stories and the characters, and at the same time the direct market was expanding and maybe even the newsstand market and subscriptions was expanding, then you could say, oh, this character that appeared as a guest star, as a villain, might be interesting enough to merit their own miniseries or their own title. So it, I think all this stuff was happening simultaneously. Well, hundreds of listeners like you hang out in our community of Spider-Man fans on Slack. The amazing Spider-Slack community is absolutely free to join, and you can jump into active conversations with awesome people about collecting, convention, movies, new comics, old comics, and more. Yeah, I'm there all the time. This week, we've all been buzzing about that new Miles Morales game and how amazingly cool it looks. I can't wait to play it, but I got to spend like $800 to get that new PlayStation. But we're going to be there. Just follow the link in the description and be sure to say hi and let us know what you thought of this episode in our amazing Spider Slack. All right, we're back. So, Danny, we're, uh, we got another super hindsighty question for you here, our favorite kind here. So, you know, now kind of moving away from the editor position, but talking about some of the creators that were coming through uh, Marvel at this time. I mean, like, I, I always look back at this period as kind of like the second wave of, of great talent. You had like John Byrne, Roger Stern, Frank Miller, uh, Mike Zach, Jim Star, Mike Zach, Mike, Jim Starlin, John Romita Jr., who were starting and even got some you know time on a few spider-man issues here and there you know when you were kind of joining on i mean what i mean was there just a buzz about these individuals like i mean was there kind of the sense of like you know we got this great stable of talent here and you know sky's the limit or are we just kind of you know over over extending our our, our thoughts of these guys because it's now 30 40 years later and you know they're considered the grace of the industry now 
Well, you know, it, it's funny. It, 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 in a way, it goes back to Denny and, and his generation. Because if you look at your comics history, very few people in that generation went into comics because the guys from the 40s and 50s were still around. Books were still selling, you know, as well as anybody thought they were going to sell. There was no superstar. The superstars were the characters. And the, and the readers were largely children. So, you know, especially in those days, they didn't know it was Kurt Swan that they liked or Wayne Boring or Gil Kane. They just knew they liked Green Lantern. They liked The Flash. Or they liked Superman. They liked Wonder Woman. So you have, again, these multiple phenomena converging. But, so, you know, there were enough comics being published that, there, that the business could accommodate new people. And comics are gaining this respectability. So instead of going no further than Brooklyn and Queens and the Bronx for the talent pool, suddenly it's nationwide and even worldwide. And people, just like people came to New York to be in theater and to be in finance and to be in, in, in the restaurant, you know, like people would come to New York to be in all these different fields. Well, suddenly or gradually people are coming to be in the comic business. And you know, I think a lot of the more people have been active in fandom and doing fanzines and self-published stuff. So that sort of sets the stage you know, for this influx of talent, because without the actual ability to publish stuff and, you know, and pay for writers and artists and colorists and letterers, there's nothing for these people to do once they come to New York. And, and, the, and it was very much a New York uh, business then. You know, you really... Certainly, to get started, you had to be available to come in for a meeting or, or just be there to bail somebody out from a deadline jam. So did we, know, did we know it was a golden age? We knew these people were good or great or had great potential. You know, when you're there in the thick of it, you're looking at them in the midst of the many other people who are, you know, who are not as good, but they're still like in this flow but we knew these people were good. I mean, certainly, somehow I have in my mind, I'm sure, you know, that when George Perez or Frank Miller would bring work in and, you know, they would really just be in the bullpen making their own copies, people would gather around to see what they had done. So, yeah, we had a, we had a sense of who was, had a, a buzz and, and something new going on as opposed to, the perfectly talented and nice people who would bring in their perfectly competent and professional work, but people were not gathering around the photocopier for that. You know, you know, when you have so many talented people, you know, the the next big fear is like, how is the competition going to take them? You know, and like even just for example, you know, John Romita Jr. We've seen him bounce back and forth between Marvel and DC. You know, at a whim, which you know, it's it's certainly his. Uh, prerogative at this stage in his career well no i don't think it's totally a win but like I, he could if he want you know like you know he, he i think he could have his pick of the litter at this point i guess i'm curious you know when you read like let's just take spider-man for example i mean on a spider-man show you know th that era was kind of like a strange time for like artists on the book there was kind of just a rotating stable especially on like spectacular spider-man where you'd get like two issues from this person and two issues from that person. How were those assignments kind of distributed at the time? And like, how does Mar Marvel go about like making sure that these new talents stayed in their house? Ideally, the theory was that readers responded to consistency. 
So if you had a team, if you had Claremont and Cochran or Claremont and Byrne on, on, on uh, X-Men, and if you had Stern and uh, Romita Jr. on Spider-Man or, or the Falco and Friends, you wanted to keep those consistent. But there was that other thing of the deadlines. So very often what you'd have is say, you know, the writer, you know, writers generally can finish a, a script faster than an artist can finish drawing, you know, so, you know because it's generally faster to write. So it's, you know, it's, it's easier to write, you know, uh, 10,000 troops come over the hill than it is to draw 10,000 troops coming over the hill. <laughs> uh, so, you know, so you, you try to say keep the writer on, but then you get a fill-in artist, which the artist doesn't always like. You know, it, it, you're juggling all this stuff, so but a lot of it yeah, did have to do with deadlines. And the deadline in this era when it was sort of transitioning from the deadline is king to suddenly we're selling the names of the creators as much as we're selling the characters, you know, do you wait for Creator X who's only going to give you nine issues a year and then you're, in the company's point of view, you're losing the money on those other three issues even if you're satisfying the fans who love that creator. So I think a lot of those things are, are, are what's balanced and, and juggled. So I, I think it's often something as simple as that. You know, some, especially the people who do more detailed work aren't always going to be able to do 22 detailed pages a month. And then how do you keep the... Well, I mean, that's how the royalty system started. I mean, DC actually beat Marvel to the punch with offering creators the royalties on comics you know and 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 then marvel followed suit so that's one way i guess you try to create a friendly and uh comfortable work situation you know there's different chemistry between creators and editors you know as, as i you know some people think i'm the best editor they ever worked the best editor they ever worked with some people think i'm the worst editor they ever worked with i'm the same guy so clearly there's something about the chemistry that, that, that has to do with keeping people around. It, it's it's an endless battle between paying people more or and or treating them better. I mean, that's, that, that's all you can do. Well, speaking of a specific creator here and someone that you had mentioned earlier as someone that I guess you, I think you said would you would kind of gather around in the bullpen to take a look at their work. But with Frank Miller, you know, obviously he you know, is considered such a unique talent. And even like some of the early work he did on some select issues of Spider-Man, you know, it, it just kind of shows just how different he was from a lot of, of his contemporaries at the time. You know, so I guess like what were some of those characteristics that you think differentiated him that kind of made him a little more, you know, a, I don't want to say appealing, but like that drew your that drew people's attention to him. And I'm also just curious: Did you ever work with him directly as an editor? What, I mean, what was kind of your impressions of him if you did? You know, to that case, I, I never worked with Frank directly, uh, which I guess means I never had to be concerned about you know any of those you know day to day was he hitting the deadline or not. I mean, that was that wasn't my problem. He was always very friendly. He was you know. What he brought to it was what comic sells, which is you know, which is what the image guys sold years later was this enthusiasm and this energy that that exploded off the page. It was something new, especially his work on Daredevil. You know, you could say, well, he took elements from Eisner and from Chandler and 
you know, from film noir, but, you know, but, but he, but then he added that thing that that's called style or, or, or personality. I don't, I don't know, talent. And it was clear. And that's why everybody wanted to see his pages before he even had a chance to finish making photocopies. I guess if it was easily definable, like it, you know, it, it wouldn't be special, right? You know, it's, it's the, the inability for us to piece it together that makes it such a, like a commodity. Yeah. One of my favorites is John Romita Jr. And, you know, he has done so much work on Spider-Man from different eras, whether it be the 2000s, the 80s, you know, the 90s. I mean, he's been a main real fixture there. But, you know, when he first kind of started off at, at the company, he's kind of talked you know, openly about feeling like there was kind of a shadow cast over him from his very, you know, legendary father. You know, I, I guess I'm curious, you know, what the general impression of John Romita Jr. was at the time, considering who his father was. Well, when I, when I came in in 77, John, John Jr. was on staff. He was doing art corrections as well as I think he had started doing freelance work. He's a really nice guy, a really funny guy. I think in comics, it literally is, especially with artists, I mean, writers, it's a little hard to sort of tell if they're good or not. But with, you know, with, you know that's, why, that's why conventions, an editor can kind of evaluate art, but writing they have to take home or back to the office. Again, you looked at, John, at Johnny's stuff and went, oh, <laughs> you know, <laughs> uh, you know it, was, it was terrific superhero comic art. And actually, you know, and in the beginning and certainly over the years, it's got he's he's really got a given his work such personality that it that it's above and beyond what's required for, you know, superhero comic art. And I think that's what I think he's a guy. I think Sal Buscema is like that. I think Frank Miller is like that. People who have grown and not just kind of developed a style when they're 25 and stuck with it for the next 40 years. I mean, you have to remember, again, the context of Marvel or, or of publishing and certainly of Martin, you know, the, what had been Martin Goodman's publishing company, you know. I mean, there were still people named Goodman working in the company. Stan and <laughs> his brother Larry Lieber were related to Martin Goodman, you know. The idea that somebody was related to somebody walking around the halls of Marvel Comics was not a big shock, <laughs> you know. I mean, uh, yeah. It was, you know, yeah, half the people there were related to somebody else there. So so that was not seen as unusual or, or, or an impediment. So, so Danny, looking back on that era, you know, through your personal lens, you know, from when you first started working at Marvel until the time you became editor of, of the Spider-Man titles, I mean... What are what are some of the things that distinguishes that period in your memory? I mean, do you do you consider this a unique time at Marvel? Are we just embellishing on it because we wanted to create a podcast episode about it right now? I mean, what what what's what are the features here? <laughs> so we're talking about the early eighties, late late seventies, early eighties. Yeah. Well, you really have to attribute it to a lot of it to Jim Shooter. Yeah, I think a lot of it. Jim had a certain vision of how to structure a comic book company and not everybody liked that and and you know there there were certainly things one could critique about Jim's uh, tenure as editor-in-chief but he had a certain vision for how to how to how to run an editorial line 
and how to keep the books at a certain level of quality. And he championed talent, and he championed editors. And we all heard the, the you know, the, 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 the downside and the not-so-wonderful aspect of that. But on the whole, you know, he, he, he knew how to make use of people like me, like Tom DeFalco, like Mark Grunewald. You know, and again, it was that generation of people who came in from fandom to take advantage of the opportunities that that the growing direct market provided. But I, I think a lot of it you can you can attribute to to Shooter and and the editors he hired, people like DeFalco and Al Milgram and Larry Hama and Louise Simonson, and then you know, and then even me and you know and, and you know he had he had a a knack for most of the time hiring really talented, really dedicated, really smart people. Hey, and, and that's the job, right? I mean, that, you know, do, doing that well is, is like nine tenths the battle. It is. I mean, I think there's a myth, you know, or may, that if you hire the right people and just let them go, things will magically take care of themselves. Well, they won't, but hiring the right people is, is important. You know, they, there is still, Especially with, you know, with uh, franchise, corporately owned characters like Marvel, there is often a need for editorial intervention. And that's where the chemistry comes in, because you're not just hiring somebody to do stuff and then rubber stamping it. Even if you wanted to, you couldn't, because, you know, eventually you're going to have, if not conflicts with the corporate aspect of the company, you're going to have conflicts between the creators or between different offices that want to use characters or borrow a cat. You know, there's all sorts of things that need to be adjudicated and, and, and decided. But yeah, a big part of it is hiring the right editorial people and those editorial people hiring the right creative people. And, and, and that, that shifts. Somebody who's the right creative or editorial person you know, in 1982 might not be the right one in 1983. Well, very cool. Thank you so much, Danny, for answering all of our questions. We're going to say goodbye to you in just a minute. If you guys find the show entertaining and valuable, please consider supporting us. Recommend Amazing Spider Talk to a friend. And if you're able, become a member on Patreon. We can only bring you this content with the support of our Patreon members. And we owe the show's success to every single one of them. And we are constantly making exclusive contact for our members. This week, we are opening up our mailbag to answer some questions from our Patreon listeners. So tune in after the show on Patreon for that exclusive conversation. Yeah, comic releases are limited right now. So why not take that $3.99 you might have spent on a comic and put it towards a month subscription to support the show and start receiving our Patreon content. And then when all the comic stores open back up again, the distribution chains get sorted out and you pick up your copious pulls, you'll hear our Patreon-exclusive review podcast of every new issue of Amazing Spider-Man the same week that it comes out. And if you contribute $10 a month, you gain access to exclusive artwork from famous Spider-Man artists commissioned exclusively for our members. This season, we'll be make, mailing out a print of Nothing Can Stop the Juggernaut, drawn by official Marvel artist Max Fiamora in color and inks. Plus, every episode, we release a new episode-specific desktop background created for us by artist Nick Cagnetti for our patrons to enjoy. Yeah, we know this is a hard time for everybody, including us, so we appreciate anyone who supports the show by listening and sharing. 
But if you have the means, please join our Patreon to support the continued existence of our show. Just follow the link in the description. And thank you again to all the members who already make our show possible. Thank you from the bottom of our hearts. But alas, it is that time, time for all good things to come to an end. So we want to say thank you to you, the listeners and viewers, for tuning in to this episode of Amazing Spider Talk. And of course, thank you to you, Danny Fingeroth, for stopping by. Thank you, Dan. Thank you, Mark. And if somebody feels like picking up A Marvelous Life, the amazing story of Stan Lee, don't let me stop you. Uh, DannyFingeroth.com is uh, the best bet. And I'm... Facebook is probably my main social media. Otherwise, you can see I do have a Twitter handle as well. And oddly, on July 1st, apparently they're discussing my stand book at the Walter Cronkite Book Club at the Arizona State University. So you can, I, I, I don't know their website, but there's only one Cronkite Book Club. And that was a surprise to me. So I'll be, I'll be tuning in to hear what the, their book club has to say about the book as well. And of course... I'll be doing a whole bunch of online panels at the San Diego Comic-Con at home in July. And I just want to plug Danny's book as well. We did a great episode discussing his book where he read some excerpts from it. So if you haven't listened to that, go back and listen to that and pick up the book. It's, you know, one of my favorite books I've read this year, perhaps my favorite book I've read this year, uh, just because it's a, it's a really well-written and a subject I adore. And if you've listened this far into our show, you're going to love the book, too. So, I mean, come on, go pick it up. Well, thank you, Dan. And there is an audio version and a large type. So thanks, guys. It was, this was great fun. Uh, I'm glad I got to show off my uh, quarantine hairdo. It's very special. <laughs> and I hope everybody stays well and, and, and we all get through this in one piece. Well, great. Thanks again, Danny. And I hope we can talk to you real soon. Thank you. Take care, guys. It's been a pleasure. As always, everybody at Listening at Home, this episode was edited by Rick Coast with production support from Andy Myers. Our artwork comes handcrafted by artists Ron Friends, Sal Busema, Ray Sumzer, and Nick Cagnetti. And our theme song was produced by Ryland Bojack and Spider Madge. Our animated introduction was created by Josh Sutton from the Panels to Pixels YouTube show. Dan, this was a lot of fun, but what do we got coming up on our next episode? Yeah, I can't wait for our next episode, Mark, because we're going to be talking about Jessica Drew, also known as the Spider-Woman. I say Jessica Drew specifically because there's been a lot of Spider-Women and we're going to be talking about the premiere one. So we're hoping to have a great guest join us for that show if things work out. But it should be a fun discussion about the debut of the character and her history throughout the years. And I mean, look at that beautiful artwork. I mean, who could who could say no to Spider-Woman? Certainly not the OG, right? (laughs) (laughs) Well, Mark, with the end of our show comes our eternal motto. Mark, take it away. Deliver us that motto in the sweet baritone of Uncle Ben. Right, of course. Well, with great podcasts, there must also come the amazing Spider Talk. Don't miss the next installment.